Hi, I'm your host, Charlene Burns, a researcher with the ProLegis policy team. Welcome to The Congressional Record, a podcast by ProLegis. Each week, we bring you a deep dive into Congress's policy priorities. In this podcast, we'll cover the processes unique to the first branch of government and discuss some of the pressing policy issues legislators are working on. To stay on top of new podcast episodes and to get other policy content from ProLegis, sign up for a free ProLegis account using the link in the description below. This week, we bring you a special episode of the Congressional Record. I had the opportunity to interview Emily Hamilton of George Mason University's Mercatus Center about how zoning policy influences housing affordability. Housing affordability has been on a lot of people's minds, especially this past year. For home buyers, the market was especially difficult as many homes were selling well over listing prices and supply was short. For renters, many saw their lease agreements go up by several hundred dollars a month. While policymakers have talked about solutions like rental assistance, one often forgotten piece of the puzzle is zoning. In this interview, I speak with Emily about how local zoning policies can restrict housing supply, especially for more affordable rental properties and entry-level homes. We also talked about how zoning policies have played out in the D.C. region and what solutions Congress may consider to encourage better zoning policies across communities in the U.S. Stay tuned for the interview after the break. ProLegis is a new policy technology company founded by former congressional staffers and startup alums. We have one mission, to offer free tools that make it easier to learn about, track, and deepen your understanding of policy issues and legislation. We offer free features such as U.S. code redlining and a personalizable dashboard to track the legislation and congressional activity that matters to you. We also offer nonpartisan, unbiased information through our briefings and podcasts. Sign up for a free account today to get full access to the suite of policy tools on ProLegis.com. Hi, everyone. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Emily Hamilton on the topic of zoning and housing affordability. Emily is a senior research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where she focuses on urban economics and land use policy. She has authored numerous academic articles and policy papers, and her writing has appeared in USA Today, The Washington Post, and The LA Times. Emily, thank you for joining us as a guest on The Congressional Record. Thanks, Charlene. Great to talk with you. The topic of housing affordability has been on a lot of people's minds this summer with, you know, the inflated prices that people saw. They were trying to buy a new home or, you know, the new rental agreements that they got. But these issues aren't just from COVID-related inflation. It's been kind of a compounding problem of legacy policies that have contributed to lower housing supply and higher prices. And one of the angles that isn't really talked about in looking into these housing issues is land use policy or zoning. Can you explain a little bit about how zoning relates to housing affordability? Sure. So zoning rules are typically local regulations that dictate what is allowed to be built where. So most localities in the U.S. uh, that have any substantial population have rules that dictate land uses. So for example, 
oftentimes large parts of a locality's area that are zoned for residential use are specified for exclusively detached single family development. So just a single house with its own yard sitting on a lot. And then on top of that, localities almost always have minimum lot size requirements, which mean that that yard that the house sits on has to be of a, a certain size. So when we see um, rules like this repeated in locality after locality, in totality, they set a limit on how much housing can be um, built within a, a specific jurisdiction and dictate how much that housing is going to cost to build um, and are one of the key reasons that housing affordability is such a serious problem in the U.S. and it's getting worse over time. So we see that the median rent relative to median income uh, is going up over the, the past several decades, even as in many ways we are becoming a wealthier society over time. There was a piece today that I saw in the New York Times, I think by Emily Badger, it's called Whatever Happened to the Starter Home, that touches on what you were talking about in terms of zoning for single family um, homes and limiting lots to certain sizes that make it easy for people to build smaller starter homes. And I know that the term that's used for some of these policies is exclusionary zoning. Can you speak a little bit about that and why people are thinking about reforming zoning and dealing with exclusionary zoning specifically? First off, that's a, a great piece that you mentioned in the New York Times that uh, your listeners should definitely check out. But basically, when a locality requires that a very expensive amount of land must be dedicated to each housing unit, it's only going to uh, make sense to build a high-end expensive house that goes along with that piece of land. It's generally not financially feasible to build a very basic say 1100 square foot house on a piece of land that costs half a million dollars. It's just not a, a product that's going to find um, many buyers. And so when localities uh, implement rules that drive up the cost of how much land each home buyer or each renter has to pay for, um, they are directly increasing the cost of housing and then also indirectly increasing it by shaping what gets built. I know you've done a lot of work looking into zoning issues in the DMV in particular, including your article about missing middle housing in Arlington and the outcomes of inclusionary zoning in the Baltimore-Washington region. Can you talk a little bit about that research in the DMV and what types of discussions are playing out locally about zoning? So Arlington County uh, is in the process of considering a proposal that would replace its single family zoning in most cases with zoning that would allow between two and all the way up to eight units to be built on a single lot. And this is in the vein of reforms that several localities have implemented in recent years, uh, as well as um, a couple of states that is really addressing single family zoning uh, as the source of exclusionary zoning that you mentioned, and instead allowing uh, under these missing middle proposals a little bit more housing to be built on each lot. And we've seen that in some places that do have 
ordinances that allow for, for example, duplex zoning, um, that when these ordinances are crafted to allow for home builders to replace single family houses with a little bit more density in a way that's appealing for home buyers or renters, um, this does result in densification of neighborhoods gradually over time. One of my favorite examples of this is Palisades Park, New Jersey, which is a small town in Bergen County, New Jersey, that has a very, um, uh, a duplex ordinance that makes it um, an attractive option to replace old single family houses with larger duplexes. And going on Google Street View for Palisades Park, you can see tons of examples uh, of this new duplex construction that's allowed the population of uh, Palisades Park to roughly double since the 1960s. So if all the localities in the New York City metropolitan area had a approach to, to duplexes similar to Palisades Park, we could, um, I think, expect to see many more people living in the region at more affordable prices. Then on the inclusionary zoning front, this is a policy that many localities across the U.S. have adopted in response to housing affordability problems. Under inclusionary zoning, localities typically require developers of market rate apartment buildings to set aside a percentage of new apartments as affordable to households that are making a certain percentage of that area's median income. So for example, an inclusionary zoning ordinance might say that a new apartment building with 100 units has to include 10 units that are affordable to households making, say, 80% of that region's median income. As you said, I've studied this policy in the Baltimore, Washington region. Our area has the country's longest history with inclusionary zoning. And what I found is that localities that have adopted mandatory inclusionary zoning programs have experienced higher median house prices than they could than they would have expected to have without those programs in place. So what I find is that these inclusionary zoning programs are a tax on market rate housing construction. And that's even though almost all of these programs include some type of density offset that's intended to allow apartment builders to build more market rate housing than they would have been allowed to build in the absence of the program. Yeah, that's super interesting because I think it's kind of counterintuitive to um, you know those of us who aren't necessarily experts in zoning. But looking more broadly and away from just inclusionary zoning then, are there examples of states and localities that are doing something different and that you know you are seeing outcomes that have successfully lowered housing prices for different people? Definitely, yeah. To take another local example, again, 
Arlington, as well as D.C., Montgomery County, Fairfax County, many jurisdictions in the D.C. region have done a relatively good job of allowing for transit-oriented development, which is the large apartment buildings that you see going up um, or that have gone up over recent decades near the region's metro stations in particular. So going to a, a neighborhood like Noma or Navy Yard in D.C., you'll see lots and lots of new multifamily units that weren't there several years ago. Um, and this is true not just in the in the city of D.C. itself, but also in Arlington, like I said, along um, all of many of the counties, um, metro stations, there are neighborhoods of dense multifamily housing around them, Silver Spring, Tyson's, various parts of the region are allowing for this transit-oriented development on a scale that's not allowed uh, around other um, high-income regions, particularly in their suburban jurisdictions. And so as a result, while I think um, everyone listening to this podcast wishes that um, the D.C. region had less expensive housing than it does, we don't face nearly the same problem as um, residents in the Bay Area, Los Angeles, uh, Boston, or New York face um, when we look at median incomes relative to median rents here. Obviously zoning is, it plays out at a local level most of the time, but there is a role that the federal government can play in at least incentivizing best practices and reforms um, to these localities. Can you speak a little bit to recent proposals from the Biden administration, like the proposed Unlocking Possibilities Program and the Housing Supply Fund grants? At the federal level, there is relatively broad bipartisan agreement that housing affordability is a problem and local zoning rules are a big part of creating that problem. So the politics of reform are much easier at the federal level than they are when we're talking about reforming a specific rule in a specific locality to allow more and lower cost housing to be built. The Unlocking Possibilities program was uh, included in the Build Back Better um, bill that uh, was passed in the House but ultimately didn't move forward. And it would have provided localities with funding to study um, their land use policies and consider reforms that would improve housing affordability. Then the, um, the White House's proposal took that um, and included another step further with the housing supply fund that would have rewarded localities for policies that they've actually implemented that um, support housing affordability rather than the Unlocking Possibilities program, which uh, would have funded planning activities rather than rewarding actual implemented policy changes. 
I like to think of federal policy towards zoning as having three levels of effectiveness. The first level uh, and the least effective is funding planning activities. The second level and middle effectiveness is rewarding specific zoning changes, such as uh, allowing for accessory dwelling units or replacing single family zoning with duplex zoning. And then the third level is rewarding um, actual housing market outcomes, such as the amount of housing a locality is allowing to be built or the, the affordability of housing in a locality. And I like that third level the best because we can often find examples of zoning reforms that look like they allow more and lower cost housing to be built on paper, but that aren't really resulting in a lot of new housing being built. Um, for example, localities may have accessory dwelling unit ordinances that legalize these um, small units like backyard cottages, but they don't actually see homeowners adding a lot of them because of some remaining barriers that might make them unattractive. And on the congressional side, members of Congress have also proposed different bills that would create programs to incentivize certain types of zoning policies. But a lot of these proposals would leverage funding under the Community Development Block Grant to incentivize you know, better zoning rules. And I know you have spoken about how this is not necessarily the right tool for targeting exclusionary zoning practices. Why is that? Yeah, it makes sense that proposals in Congress have been drawn to the Community Development Block Grant as a tool because it's one of the few spending programs that goes directly from the federal government to localities. But some of the most exclusionary jurisdictions like small, uh, wealthy suburban localities may not be um, qualify for community development block grant funds under the formula that determines their allocation. So I would argue that if Congress really wants to create a grant program that incentivizes zoning reform, they should instead create a new uh, race to the top program structure that would allow all localities that issue zoning ordinances and building permits to be eligible for these grants and reward these localities based on um, their actual housing market outcomes. Uh, like I said earlier, that could include the rate of um, housing permitting in those jurisdictions, as well as some type of measure of their affordability. Um, one indicator that my colleagues and I have suggested as a good um, indication of a locality's receptiveness to low cost construction would be to look at the price of new construction housing um, in a, a locality as um, one measure of how feasible it is to build not just any type of housing, but particularly low cost housing there. And so for those who are following housing policy in Congress, do you see these type of recommendations being adopted anytime soon? Or are there any bills that you know people should be following that maybe kind of go towards that direction of, you know, being focused on housing market outcomes and, and things like that? 
Yeah, I think it's feasible. We've seen um, several bills in recent years introduced that would create some type of incentive for localities to adopt um, less exclusionary zoning. Um, we've seen uh, Senator uh, Booker and Representative Clyburn's bill that would uh, create some new zoning standards for community development block grant recipients. There's the uh, Build More Housing Near Transit Act, which would um, instead uh, require applicants for fixed guideway um, transit to include an analysis of their openness to um, housing construction with their grant. And that makes a lot of sense because there's a direct relationship between federal spending on transit and uh, what local zoning rules allow to be built in the areas surrounding that transit that determine basically how far that federal money is going to go if the federal government is going to be spending a lot of money on transportation investments in places where housing isn't allowed to be built or large office buildings aren't allowed to be built, then that is not going to be money well spent uh, because there's just not going to be a lot of opportunities for people to use that transit. Well, I have one last question related to all of this, which is more of a broad question for you about what interesting, you know, states or localities should people look into for examples of kind of innovative or, um, you know, successful reforms that they're working on? I know you mentioned Palisades Park in New Jersey, but maybe there are just a few others. Sure. I would suggest listeners look into Houston's minimum lot size reforms, which were passed in 1998 and expanded in 2013. And under this rule change, home builders can build basically detached townhouses on lots as small as 1,400 square feet, which is down from their previous requirement of 5,000 square feet. So essentially now three detached townhouses can replace where one house would have been permitted previously. And there are certain neighborhoods in Houston that have seen um, transformational redevelopment as a result of this rule change. About 40,000 small lot houses have been built across the city as a result of this policy. And Houston has a median house price below the national median, even though it's experienced decades of above the national average of population growth and economic growth over that time frame. I also think um, Seattle's planning program called urban villages around um, some of its neighborhoods that are well served uh, by primarily bus transit is another good example of transit oriented development that's really facilitated a, a multifamily development boom there. Um, and it's it's not so different from some of the, of the reforms that we've seen in the D.C. area, allowing for large apartment buildings to be built near transit. And last thing before we close out, I wanted to give you a chance to plug anything you've been working on that you would like listeners to check out. 
I have a comment that will be coming out soon on a reform that's under consideration in Virginia that would allow for smaller apartment buildings to be built with just one staircase rather than two, which is uh, currently required in almost all jurisdictions in the U.S. under their building codes. And this policy change would allow for smaller apartment buildings to be built on sites where it wouldn't be feasible to build an apartment building with two staircases. And um, rather than having two staircases, it would include other fire safety features like sprinklers and materials that have slow burning times. And um, this would create the opportunity for multifamily development that's a little bit more like what we see in a lot of European cities um, and could just create new opportunities for multifamily development where it's not possible to build under today's rules. Cool. Looking forward to that. Um, but thank you again, Emily, for joining me. This has been a super interesting conversation and I've definitely learned a lot about zoning. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thank you, Charlene. Great talking with you. Understanding the annual appropriations process has never been more simple than with ProLegis' appropriations tool. The tool is a one-of-a-kind, easy-to-use, searchable database that provides historical context for federal government spending bills and contains appropriations data from fiscal year 2016 to 2021 for every account and subaccount. ProLegis' appropriations tool can help staffers quickly identify appropriations levels and trends from previous fiscal years. Whether you're working on a policy memo, reviewing appropriations requests, or trying to understand Congress's appropriations decisions, the appropriations tool can help. Sign up for our free ProLegis account to get access to the ProLegis appropriations tool today. That's all for this episode of The Congressional Record. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to sign up for your free ProLegis account if you haven't already. You can go to ProLegis.com, that's P-R-O-L-E-G-I-S.com, to find additional show notes and sources for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Our handles are in the episode notes as well. Finally, I want to give special thanks to Amelia Schuster and Jason Lemons for providing their feedback on this episode. We'll see you next week on The Congressional Record, when we'll be back with another episode on housing affordability.